You're listening to the New World Order, a podcast series from Gateway House, which observes, defines, and seeks to understand the changing political trends across the world. Welcome to the New World Order. I'm your host, Vipritha Vikram Singh. Since the development of nuclear weapons during the Second World War, nation states around the world have been obsessed with the idea of possessing and controlling regions through the possession and threat of use of nuclear weapons. Today, in this podcast, we're going to be taking a look at nuclear. That will include nuclear weapons and nuclear energy as a whole. Here to join me to discuss the geopolitics and security implications of nuclear weapons and nuclear energy is Ambassador Neelam Deo, Director at Gateway House. Uh, great to be on. Ambassador, in 2015, we saw the signing of a landmark agreement between Iran, the P5 and Germany uh, in, what, in what is known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. The agreement stipulated that Iran would eliminate or reduce its stockpile of enriched uranium and it would convert facilities in order to prevent nuclear proliferation through the supervision of the IAEA. While the deal was originally spearheaded by President Obama, it, it has been labelled as a very poor deal by President Trump and the current administration in the United States has taken strong steps to distance itself from the agreement. National Security Advisor Michael Flynn has put Iran on notice for the conducting of missile tests. And in a very recent statement, it was said that Iran has not lived up to the spirit of the agreement. Ambassador Deo, just to kick things off, what could the geopolitical and security implications be should the United States undo this historic deal? So the first thing is that uh, along with the P5 and Germany, uh, the European Union was associated with this agreement, which is important. Now, the present situation is that the not only the IAEA, but the Trump administration itself has certified that Iran is fulfilling its part of the bargain. Uh, it has, the Trump administration has labeled all the agreements uh, arrived at by the Obama administration as being bad agreements, the worst in history, etc. So I don't think one needs to take that aspect too seriously. But the U.S. administration has also notified the Speaker of the House that they intend to review the agreement. And the U.S. has imposed new sanctions relating to Iran's missile tests. On the Iranian side, the dissatisfaction is that new foreign direct investment has not flowed into Iran at least partly because Iran is still not fully reconnected to the global financial system and companies are afraid of punitive action by the U.S. So the only big deal that's been announced is for a large number of aircraft from Boeing, which naturally does not want the agreement to be tinkered with in any way. The implications in case the United States tries to renegotiate or to uh, you know, reject the agreement altogether uh, would be that, first of all, its partners in the agreement, uh, that is the Europeans, um, the European Union itself, Germany, have all already started uh, action to resume their economic engagement with Iran, and they are not keen on any changes to this. Besides, China uh, and Russia will not agree to a renegotiation. 
China's position and its relationship with Iran has already strengthened a great deal with Iran, one of the very eager participants in the Chinese uh, One Belt, One Road uh, uh, project. Uh, at the same time, Iran has also moved closer to Russia, especially on, in, re, with reference to Syria. The consequences will be that the UN Security Council, under whose aegis this agreement was arrived at, uh, will be paralyzed and will not be able to get the votes required to make any changes. And certainly Iran cannot improve from the American point of view this agreement at all when it is heading into elections. And uh, President Rouhani, who is seen as a reformer, is already under pressure, as is his foreign minister, Zarif, who was the principal negotiator from the Iranian side. So it would cause uh, further damage to the functioning of the UN Security Council, already paralyzed on the Syria question. Uh, the European allies will be further uh, disillusioned with the U.S. in terms of its credibility, whether when the United States enters an agreement, it actually fulfills the terms of that agreement. Uh, the Chinese position in the area will be strengthened further, uh, as will the Russian uh, relationship with Iran. So it is not clear what benefit Trump hopes to achieve, except for uh, maybe more kudos from Israel. Uh, and maybe uh, more supportive statements from those associations within Israel, within the United States, like APAC, which have been strongly critical of this agreement. It will also win the United States a level of credibility with its Sunni Arab allies like Saudi Arabia, which have been uh, very critical of this agreement. On the other side of Asia, there's another pressing nuclear problem that is that is coming about. Um, North Korea has been taking an increasingly aggressive posture in the region, uh, conducting nuclear tests and missile tests across the Sea of Japan and the East China Sea. Now, since coming into office, uh, the U.S. president has spent a great deal of time with his East Asian counterparts. Uh, his first meeting was with President Shinzo Abe, uh, and he recently had a successful summit with President Xi. From, of China. Now, this is coupled with a series of visits by his defense secretary, his secretary of state, and now most recently his vice president to the region as well. All of these visits and interactions have come with a strong undertone that the United States is going to be more aggressive in the region towards North Korea, that, there, that there's an end of strategic patience. So, Ambassador, my question to you is, how is this stance going to affect international peace and nuclear security in the region? Well, you know, the first thing I think we have to keep in mind is that North Korea is a wild card. It's an isolated regime. But despite, you know, all these decades of isolation, it has been able to develop a credible nuclear program. It has developed a quite successful uh, missile uh, program. Uh, the and, and so it cannot be as easily trifled with in terms of attempting a regime change or something uh, as the uh, West has done in many other countries because it is uh, remains a nuclear weapon state. Uh, in terms of the recent actions, I think it's noteworthy that while 
Trump has met both Abe and the Chinese president, uh, the objectives of the two leaders are at odds with each other. Uh, China and Japan are not in a state of equilibrium with in terms of their bilateral relationship. Right now, of course, South Korea is furious, and many other countries are actually a little bit amused that uh, Trump's threat to send the uh, carrier group uh, towards uh, South Korea was not only that the group did not leave Japan and move towards South Korea, it actually went south uh, towards uh, Australia for a pre-decided naval exercise. Therefore, the threats themselves have lost a certain percentage of their uh, credibility. At the same time, uh, they are eliciting equally loud threats from North Korea, which is threatening not only to, uh, you know, attack U.S. possessions in the region like Guam, but the U.S. mainland itself. Um, As always, it creates a certain level of concern in Hawaii, which is far from the United States, but not so far from East Asia. But uh, it is also a fact that South Korea, uh, North Korea's latest missile launch failed, and it possibly failed because of a U.S. Uh, cyber attack. So the North Korean program uh, has become vulnerable to cyber. I think the, the same way China, of course, has the most influence, but not complete influence over North Korea. And one indication of this is that uh, Kim, the, the young leader, has not been invited to visit Beijing for the three years that he has been the head of the government in DPRK. Uh, the end of strategic patience is, uh, leads to an increase in uncertainty and unpredictability in a region in which South Korea itself is also roiled by the way its previous president was impeached and is now imprisoned and there are forthcoming presidential elections. Um, But it is also a fact that China is likely to do everything it can to forestall a collapse of the regime uh, for various reasons. Uh, It would not want American forces stationed in South Korea to move into its, uh, up to the border with China. It would not want a flood of refugees, though it is more likely that refugees or more of the refugees from North Korea will move towards the South. Um, regime change has become even more complicated uh, with the assassination of uh, Kim Jong-un's brother in uh, Kuala Lumpur. So it's very difficult to know what action can be taken to tamp down the conflict, to, to reduce the level of threats and the uncertainty. And the possibility of a standoff between the U.S. and China over North Korea cannot uh, be uh, ruled out. So really, uh, in one sense, everybody has to see which of the two countries will blink first. Uh, it is, I would guess that it will be Trump who will blink, uh, because we have seen that he has not followed up on the strikes in Syria or, you know, dropping that mother of all uh, bombs in Afghanistan. And the South Koreans are the ones who are at this moment most concerned, especially as they are also undergoing political turmoil.
ambassador tensions in the region have not really been the same uh, since the 2016 presidential campaign where then candidate Trump expresses dissatisfaction with the costs associated with the THAAD, uh, the missile shield that is used to provide protection to uh, Korea and Japan in East Asia, and also his indifference towards the proposition that uh, the United States East Asian allies could actually develop their own nuclear weapons programs. Um, now, you know, with the with the series of visits that, that have happened, we're seeing a reassurance from the United States side that, um, you know, that they are going to remain involved in the region and they are there to protect the, these allies. But is this reassurance enough? Is it possible that we could see Japan and South Korea beginning the development of their own nuclear weapons programs in the near future? I would say that the U.S. reassurances to Japan and South Korea conveyed through uh, the defense secretary uh, who uh, is re generally respected in the United States as a very uh, sober and, uh, and uh, considered uh, kind of personality and has a great record. These reassurances are probably sincere, but all security alliances uh, with the United States, all those who have depended on uh, the United States in the past, have that, that credibility has been shaken, and it is it is Trump's instincts are what raise questions, especially in the way that they explain that the strikes on Syria were a result of seeing, uh, you know, videos of the terrible suffering uh, of uh, children uh, and innocent civilians after the. In the alleged chemical weapons attack. But so you, these kinds of uh, problems, especially involving nuclear weapons, cannot be responded to in instinctually, emotionally. They, they, it has been uh, historically the case that U.S., USSR, they had series of talks throughout the Cold War in trying to arrive at understanding on how they would not use their nuclear weapons, what red lines could not be crossed. Therefore, the, the credibility of these assurances is, uh, is uh, in doubt. Uh, one important uh, aspect that we should keep in mind is that uh, Japan and South Korea, before they decide to go in for nuclear weapon, uh, weapons programs, would have to consider the Chinese uh, reactions. And in the present uh, very fraught atmosphere, uh, the Chinese reaction may well be the may well be more important in, for both Japan and South Korea than whether uh, they are able to accept uh, the American uh, uh, reassurances. Uh, it is also the uh, the Chinese have have made known their uh, reservations regarding uh, third. Because it does give the U.S. a listening post into China, and it is another link in the security dependence of uh, South Korea on the United States. Ambassador, um, one of the 
uh, ambassador one of the foremost pieces of international law has been the no- the non proliferation treaty for nuclear weapons and it's something that india has from time to time pointed out the na- the kind of discriminatory and unequal nature that it has on uh, on non nuclear nations um do you feel that there's a need for n- a new international framework on nuclear non proliferation the uh, non proliferation treaty to which most countries in the world except india pakistan israel and north korea which dropped out uh, most countries are signatories but this uh, treaty is so discriminatory in its nature in the obligations that it imposes uh, that uh, there is no question that countries which have the uh, scientific and technological capacity have uh, sought to breach uh, the terms of the agreement uh, first of all it had called on the the five uh, nuclear weapon states the permanent five members of the un security council to disarm to draw down their weapons now the united states and the ussr did draw down from more than 30000 each to about around 1500 but 1500 uh, uh, nuclear warheads are enough to uh, cause uh, you know pretty dreadful uh, damage to those countries themselves but also to everything uh, around them the fact that this agreement was you know pushed to be approved in perpetuity has made it its inherent uh, discriminatory nature even more permanent and even more disliked by countries like uh, india there are several other countries which have the capacity and had actually initiated nuclear weapon programs like south korea uh, south africa which was forced to give it up at the end of apartheid in order for the uh, big powers to actually endorse the handover of power to the black majority but uh, also countries like brazil argentina have uh, those two have voluntarily given up their uh, nuclear weapons program so did ukraine but as a result of a four country agreement uh, but uh, countries like iran libya north korea uh, india israel pakistan all pursued nuclear weapons uh, programs and some of us were not uh, signatories so this agreement clearly doesn't work and there is one other very uh, important uh, aspect which is that uh, what is referred to as friendly proliferation nuclear weapon states have already in the past in the 50s and 60s uh, uh, the us helped the united kingdom to have a nuclear weapons program similarly france uh, assisted israel in its nuclear weapons program china has more recently in through the 70s 80s Uh, assisted Pakistan in its nuclear weapons program and probably has assisted North Korea though you know we have not seen any uh, evidence uh, to that effect but it is well known that many chinese firms supply nuclear material to North Korea uh, india and iran are the two countries which have carried out their own programs largely on their own scientific and technological knowledge but now there is also Uh, uh there have been uh, discussions on whether and trump has certainly brought those discussions to the fore on whether friendly countries or friendly allies like japan uh, south korea european powers uh and maybe even 
some powers in the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia, Egypt, should not be allowed or enabled to have nuclear weapons. Proliferation is a real concern, but it is a real concern also because disarmament is not taking place. UK and France have never reduced their stockpiles. China is increasing its stockpile. Pakistan today has the fastest growing stockpile. And because Pakistan is grow- the stockpile is growing so fast, it brings into play another concern, which is that non-state actors, terrorist groups, can get hold of these weapons. So yes, a new agreement is needed and an agreement which is not discriminatory. Uh, furthermore, uh, Ambassador, given that existing international law has been unable to achieve uh, disarmament, there have been many uh, treaties and agreements and, and steps being taken by nations across the world, but it's never really amounted to a successful disarmament of nuclear weapons and um, of, of nuclear weapons. Is there a need to update or strengthen international law on this issue in particular? You know, uh, there are already models to be followed. The agreement on chemical weapons, on biological weapons, these agreements have led many countries to declare whether they had uh, uh, programs and to draw down those programs, including India, which had a chemical weapons uh, program. But these countries place the same obligations on all countries. Therefore, many more countries are willing to fulfill them. A disarmament agreement with reference to nuclear weapons as well, I would call upon all countries to disarm. And a new framework will therefore uh, be devised. It is more likely to be acceptable. Uh, And today it has become more and more important for countries to disarm. And also uh, the way that nuclear capable material is is uh, dealt with, is stored, it is in safekeeping, is more and more important because terrorist uh, groups are keen to get their hands on this. And this is now the greatest danger to the world at large. Now, Ambassador, India has continued to push towards entering uh, groups like the nuclear suppliers groups and has continued to sign uh, civil nuclear agreements. Uh, with other countries like the United States and uh, most recently Japan. At the same time, however, there's been a widespread shift away from the use of nuclear power. Um, This has come from a combination of events, uh, the costs associated with nuclear uh, reactors, the failing of uh, nuclear technology companies like Westinghouse, um, the 2011 disaster in Fukushima, um, and disposal problems associated with uh, with nuclear weapons, along with an overarching uh, advancement on uh, n- renewable sources of energy like solar and wind. Is there a need for countries like India to course-correct towards more renewable sources of energy? Yes, of course. But, but you know, we have to keep in mind that India wants to be a member of the uh, nuclear suppliers group, it's, uh, Australia group, us in our agreement, etc. Not necessarily for access to nuclear power technology, but because this whole technology denial regime, including MTCR, was set up in order to deny India high technology and not only nuclear technology. 
So most technology, many technologies have uh, dual uses, and that is what was denied uh, to India. So yes, India has uh, developed uh, nuclear uh, power technologies, but it was also denied many other technologies which uh, uh, have uses, industrial uses, medical uses, weather forecasting, etc. Therefore, India correctly seeks membership in order to access high technology. Uh, and also because, like most countries, nuclear energy is a part of the mix uh, of sources that most countries try to have. But without question, India should invest more and more in renewable energy and not in nuclear uh, energy. Renewables have become cheaper. They are much uh, more environment-friendly, especially if you take into account the possibility of an accident like Chernobyl or Fukushima. And one cost which is never built into uh, assessing the viability of nuclear energy is the cost to society, which is enormous because the storage of used uh, fuel rods, uranium, uh, which some part of which have a half-life which runs into thousands of years, and the dangers of, you know, seepage into underwater sources, etc., is so great that uh, nuclear power uh, has a high cost in market terms, but also to society at length. So renewables is definitely the way to go for India, and I would imagine for most countries. Ambassador Deo, just to wrap up this episode, what would be what would your assessment be of nuclear in the future, both as a source of energy and as a weapon? Um, I think that nuclear will remain uh, a part of the energy mix of countries, uh, whether it is Japan, whether it is France, whether which have a very high proportion of their energy coming from uh, nuclear, also the United States, China. Uh, because uh, for various reasons. One is, of course, that in the existing nuclear plants, there is the element of sunk costs. Countries have invested billions of dollars, and they don't want to just uh, let it go. So even a country like Germany, where the population is very environmentally conscious, um, is continuing with its uh, nuclear uh, power from existing plants. It hopes to phase them out, but that itself is policy that has gone uh, back and forth. Uh, Japan is restarting those nuclear reactors which were closed after the accident at uh, Fukushima. Most countries are building new plants in the long run. Even oil-rich countries like Iran, Saudi Arabia, etc., are keen to build uh, uh, nuclear energy plants. So I think that... Uh, it will continue as a source of energy. At the same time, uh, it uh, has a uh, value as, as nuclear weapons, which is both of deterrence and certainly to some extent, it also has a status quality, which is why countries like the UK or France have continued with their own nuclear programs, despite being covered by the US uh, nuclear umbrella. Uh, I, I Unfortunately, uh, nuclear is not going away anytime soon. That's all the time that we have for today. Uh, thank you, Ambassador. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, subscribe, and rate us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Have a question for the podcast? Tweet it to us at gatewayhouse.ind. 
You've been listening to The New World Order, a podcast series by Gateway House, which observes, defines, and seeks to understand the changing political trends across the world.